You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show wherever you are. It's Thursday, May the 18th. It's 5.47 here in Baltimore as I talk to you. Arrived here about one in the morning after a fairly troubled journey and the sun is coming up and it's a beautiful sight over the harbour here. I'm looking out over Locust Point. I can see Chesapeake Bay in the background and there's a an immaculate dogleg of speedboats in perfect formation just down below my 22nd floor room here. I will not be getting in one of those during the course of, of the day. There is hard work to do as we approach the Preakness Stakes. And I'm connecting now uh, with Lydia Hislop in York. <laughs> yes, I apologise in advance for the uh, state of my internet connection. I'm not at home. As you say, I'm in York. Uh, yesterday was day one of the, the Dante Festival. It had some notable highs, some equally uh, important lows that we we must discuss. But let's start with the with the high points. Soul Sister, another one for Frankie Dottori and John Gosden, breezed home in the Musadora Stakes in a manner that I don't think even her most ardent fan, on the basis of her two runs so far, could have anticipated. What did you make of it? Uh, well, I think the uh, Frankie Dottori's year-long farewell tour is going quite well, isn't it? He's unearthed a, a, a proper uh, horse for the Betfred Oaks. Um, it was a, a slowly one run race until they turned into the straight for the Musidora over the extended 10 furlongs. At that point, the front runners really wound it up and got racing a long way out. And she was able to uh, make her challenge into that pace. And she really asserted inside the final furlong as they were wilting. So uh, it was a four length victory in the end, given given the pace that they that they went in the straight and the change of gear and how far out they got racing. I think she would probably turned out to be in the right position I think she might be slightly flattered by the margin of that victory but I think she's very good in short I think she should probably be favorite for the Oaks do you even in the light in light of all those extraordinary sectional times that have been produced from save the last dances Cheshire Oaks victory yeah, I just didn't like her her the way she was in the early part of that race. Um, you know, maybe that will be greenness, maybe that the fact that she really had to be pushed along and, and and pushed into the bridle and asked to hold a position in the early stages, it might have been greenness. She might have learned from it, but she won't be able to get away with something like that at Epsom. And I expect the ground not to be so specialist either. Lydia, the other big race yesterday was the Clip Logistics Duke of York Stakes Group 2 for sprinters. It featured a, an excellent performance from Azure Blue to really stamp herself among the, the, the sprinters you have to take seriously this season. She received weight from the runner-up Highfield Princess who ran a scorching race on her comeback and looked every inch as good as last year and almost as though she'd benefit from a return to five furlongs. King Stand at Royal Ascot will be her next target. And the race was marred by the loss of creative force who we will come to in a, a few moments time let's first of all concentrate on the horses who who finished first and second in the race Azure Blue first. She arrived here from a career best and listed level at Newmarket, pitched into Group 2 um, stakes, no fancy entries at this point, loomed up on the outside of Highfield Princess, leaned into her a bit as if to say, do you know who I am? I'm pretty good too. And she managed to overhaul her. I think Connections will be delighted with the winner 
and the second. The Zibla is clearly fast progressive. She'll need some supplementary entries if she's going to take her, her, her role in a Group 1 at Ascot, but why wouldn't you while she's in this kind of form? Highfield Princess John Quinn was absolutely delighted. I mean, she's proved at the age of six that she looks as, as good as ever, um, so we know that she's trained on and continues to hold her form, as he was expecting but wasn't taking for granted. She was having to concede weight here, and this was her seasonal debut, and she isn't usually traditionally in the best shape for her seasonal debut, as John has already explained on your podcast earlier this week. So he was delighted, and it's all set fair for the King's stand for her. Uh, the race um, was marred by the fatality uh, of a creative force who's been a smashing little sprinter for Godolphin over the last couple of seasons. Very tough, hardy horse had absolutely bolted up uh, at the weekend in a conditions race. Um, this was a tough one, I think, for a lot of people involved with the horse. Uh, it was really, really tough. I mean, creative force is such a such a bonny horse and he's held his form at such a high level now um, and was set to do so uh, um, this season as well. He'd already run well. Um, in the Abinet, even better at Haydock last time. He was keeping Group 1 company all last season and the season before. And so he's going to punch a big hole, I think, in, in the Godolphin team. We also sadly lost in the last race of the day, Dubai Instinct, who was returning from a, a very long absence. And he also was pulled up and sadly, he suffered a fatal industry as well, injury as well. And it's it's just made me muse on on some things which I've been thinking about for some time, and I should say that you know they're not directly connected with yesterday's events because you know I don't know you know the individual circumstances of these horses. So it's more that I, I want to make a, a general point, and this involves Nick pre-race checks. Pre-race checks that are are currently in place at some of the major festivals as part of their their protocols to to ensure that the safety of, of equine participants. Cheltenham and Aintree would be the most obvious examples, wouldn't they? That's right. Trainers for Cheltenham and Aintree are asked to provide 35 days worth of medication records for the horses they've entered to flag any more long lasting treatments such as corticosteroids and bisphosphonates. And it has to be supplemented by video evidence if a horse has an unusual gait. And after that, potential runners are classified green, amber, red by the British Horse Racing Authority. And this knowledge is then combined with veterinary examinations on the day. And that determines whether the horse is permitted to participate. Also, in terms of um, pre-race checks at a lower level, on a, on a routine quotidian level, if a horse is re returning having raced with, within two days, i.e. Um, the, the horse's second race um, is within the time period um, where he would have already have been declared before running in his first race, or perhaps more pertinently, uh, a horse that returns from an absence of 300 days or more, they're subject to the BHA's um, on-course veterinary offers pre-race check, which involves checking the horse's heart, palpitating its legs and a trot up. Yet, in my view, for this pre-race screening process to be more robust and effective, you, you've got to have input from the trainer's home vets, haven't you? And confidential access to its medical records. Um, you know, I think it's time this was done universally for all horses returning from X period, whether it's 300 days, whether another day would be another time period would, would be better. Um, and maybe the two day trigger also requires reflection. Maybe maybe that needs to be to be to take in horses returning within a, a week. I think I think there has to be more data driven 
understanding of what is going on out there. And I think in 2023, I cannot understand why there's not a centralised digital database of medical records of all horses in training available on a confidential basis to the regulator. I mean, the BHA could demand these records if they walk through the door of your yard carrying an a- carrying out an unannounced yard inspection. But a centralised digital database would significantly advance welfare precautions in the sport. You know, without this data, the BHA is unable to tell me, for example, whether corticosteroids might play a statistically significant role in catastrophic injury without a centralized medical database they can't carry out population studies that would actively inform and improve the sport's understanding of its own behaviors and the welfare of the animals on which it relies um they can't the the data from the bha is so lacking in that they can't even tell me whether a lengthy absence um puts a horse at greater risk of injury than, than horses returning from a more normal um uh, time time off period um, and, and the quick reappearance this also applies so essentially the sport needs to invest more money into this area they're going to need a data analyst as well to to go through all of the material that this would throw up and then you know come with proposals that would benefit the sport I spoke to York Racecourse's chief executive William Darby yesterday and he said he would like to see pre-race trot-ups introduced for all horses entered in his racecourse's fixtures it's a safety measure routinely carried out at high profile meetings in other jurisdictions around the world and yet inexplicably this does not happen as a matter of course in Britain I mean no doubt its introduction would be vehemently opposed but I'd be interested to see how opponents would articulate their case in an era when the sport is facing an existential threat threat in the field of animal welfare uh, you, know, part- you know participants talk about how well um, the horses are looked after well the participants need to put up with some inconveniences the sport needs to put the money where put its money where its mouth is and invest in this area i think this is urgent yeah well that that is the single the the single most pressing threat to the viability of horse racing in any country and that there is absolutely no doubt uh what have the sandersons been up to the sandersons of course are the family that own international racecourse management they uh, run thirsk and catrick and weatherby and redcar uh racecourses They're threatening legal action against the BHA if the BHA and the industry, because remember all areas of the industry are represented at the commercial committee of the BHA, including people, um, including the Sandersons who can advocate for their own behalf. But they are threatening legal action uh, against the plans of premierisation, which would involve clearing a window between 2pm and 4pm on 35 Saturdays of the year for fewer premier fixtures. Um, The hope is that the change will be betting turnover it'll be less cluttered it'll be a a high quality period of racing and the action will be spread out over a longer period of the day and uh, the argument is that this will increase betting turnover and the return to the sport and uh, James Sanderson has called it a a commercial disaster um, and essentially they are they are threatening legal action unless they take the compromise offer Um, that Sanderson has put forward, which is to have a a two-year period to trial this idea um, where um, those racecourses that inverted commas lose out would be financially compensated for it. And after a two-year period, the fixtures would return to racecourses control. And the Sandersons are strongly advising the BHA to take this uh, purported olive branch. Well, another racecourse senior executive to express reservations about the BHA's premierisation plan 
was Louise Stewart, who's the chief executive of the Chester Race Company, which also encompasses Bangor and Musselburgh Racecourse uh, from fairly recently. But clearly the jewel in its crown is the Rudy, which races on a number of Saturdays through the summer as things stand and might be asked or forced potentially to move the times of those Saturdays, which could have a uh, an economic impact on the Chester Race Company in the short term. Louise Stewart joins me now. Louise, you, you've read the, well, I can only call them them threats, I suppose, from, from the Sandersons, from International Racecourse Management yesterday. Do you think you'd you'd follow them into the law courts if if you needed to or you wanted to? I'd hope it wouldn't get that far. I think all of the racecourses that I've talked to, we all want British racing to thrive. Um, and because if it doesn't, then neither can our racecourses. So there is that for the greater good will from all the racecourses that I've talked to and certainly from Chester Race Company. And I think it's it's very difficult. We accept that change can be difficult and, and even painful. But if, if the measures will achieve that positive impact that we're looking for overall, then of course we, and, and what I've heard from other racecourses, is that we will make those adjustments. But I, I think the issue is we haven't seen all the information yet. So it's really difficult to make that that judgment and um, and I think more reassurance that any pain is is worth it you know the BHA and, and its commercial committee had a heck of a challenge in such a short time scale and race courses are, are so different I mean their business models their location and whether they're reliant on attendances or media rights they're, they're all different so it, it's going to land differently on different race courses from from Chester's perspective and I've heard what some of the participants in racing have said that we've all got to take a little bit of pain as a city centre race course that races mainly on a Saturday um, it, it, the pain for Chester isn't, isn't a little bit of pain it's potentially significant and you've got to ask yourself for a, the oldest operating race course in the world which is Chester um, which gets good attendances, good runners, it offers good prize money, great award-winning owners and trainers experience and, a, and an award-winning guest experience. It's getting so much right and it would potentially be harmed so much. You've got to ask yourself, is the strategy right? Is, is it short-term? And I think it's just that reassurance. I don't think it's helpful to, to describe race courses as whinging or, or, or threatening. I think... We all want to protect our businesses, but we also want what's best for British racing. And it, it's, it's, I, I get, I get your point, Louise. But I, I mean, listen, listening to James Sanderson yesterday, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not not partisan on this at all. But he he said the BHA don't want to be dragged through a costly legal battle for for, for two years, uh, and and if they don't accept the the olive branch of of paying us off for the for the fixtures that we have to move or lose, then. Then that's the that's the likely outcome. I mean, if that's not a threat, I don't know what is. Um, I think it's just the reality, isn't it? It's it's our core product as as racecourse, and if you don't control it, then it's it's not a, a very comfortable place to be at all as as a leader of a, of a racecourse business, as a as a general manager or director of a racecourse that. It's a very unstable situation if if your core product can be moved and um, without you having control of it, it, it makes it very difficult to 
to run your operation. So I, I, I think there, there is a justification for saying, well, who controls the product and, and how decisions are made about it. But, it, it, you know, last year, there were like we lost four fixtures at, um, in Chester Race Company following the Queen's death which according to the protocol didn't necessarily need to be cancelled that race day. That was a significant impact for us. So not having control of your product is, is, a, is a sore point for us at the moment. So I can understand that. It's, it, some race courses are quite marginal in terms of the profits they, they make and, and invest back into prize money, into guest experience, into the owners and trainers experience. And it's, it's a balance, isn't it? Because all those things are important for the future of racing, as is balancing good attendances with um, the viewing experience at home and the betting experience too. And so I don't envy the BHA and the commercial committee no. at all, but I, I think it's right that if if the case for the greater good and we're not sufficiently reassured, then I, I think it's incumbent on race courses to point that out i think they they have a significant amount of knowledge um about the do you know louise do, do you know do you know exactly what you're being asked to do have you had details set out for you in their entirety as to how many fixtures you need to move shift forwards backwards mornings twilights off saturdays ha have you had that set out in in black and white very clearly yet it's, I wouldn't say it's black and white. We do we do know the quantum and, you know, the, the BHA. I think one of the challenges that um, I don't envy them is that they've, they have shared information early so that we do have some information. We can start to look at the impact and understand it and give them information back. And so we've probably shared more information than we're necessarily comfortable with as a business so they understand the impact. But obviously, you know, looking at the impact on Saturdays and trying to get into the prime slot. Everybody is is jostling to see what they can do. So it's it's difficult to know what that final programme is going to look like and what the final impact is going to be. Um, and we are more at risk because we race a lot on a Saturday. Uh, it, is this not cr creating positive competitive tension, though, for, for a race course like like yours and for York and for Ascot and the large large independents that if if you want the shop the shop window coverage if you want some racing on ITV if you want to take a share of center stage on Saturday then you have to be more creative with your race program if you're making a lot of money out of those Saturdays then you have to divert more money into into the into the prize pot for for that fixture than than you are currently and then you will get your you know, as the theory goes, as, as the Savile plan had it, then you you get you get your slice of the slice of the pie. I think that's fine, apart from the fact that it's about the quality of the racing that you can actually achieve. Just putting up prize money, it doesn't necessarily relate to those slots. You still you're not going to get new grade ones appearing in the Chester program outside of the of the May Festival. We we don't have that kind of track. We're all our tracks are all different, all unique. Ours is narrow, tight, and technical. There's only so much you can do with it. Um, but I don't disagree. Um, you know, we are looking at the programme. We are looking, as we always do, about what we can do with the programme, with prize money, with feature races. Um, and, and we will continue to do that. And if we have to move some 
race times, then we'll look at the entire guest experience and the experience for participants to look at what we need to do. Um, and we have offered um, some dates that we might be prepared to experiment with. Um, so it, it's not that we're not being cooperative. I just think we haven't seen all the information to reassure us that this prize is, is worth this amount of adjustment. But as I said, it's one heck of a challenge that the BHA has, has got to gather all that information, data and insights to, to be able to reassure us in the timescale that they've had. Louise, thanks so much. Thank you. Louise Stewart, Chief Executive of the Chester Race Company. Lydia Hislop rejoins me. Lydia, did you think Louise made a persuasive argument there? Um, I thought she gave um, some balanced and thoughtful reasons as to why uh, she has some concerns. And she makes a very valid request for evidence. Now, we are not party to uh, the kind of evidence that that uh, race courses have been presented with, that the whole industry have been presented with. Um, but I think we can be fairly confident that there has been evidence. And all we have at the moment to suggest that there is insufficient evidence is the word of those people who... Uh, regard that their own businesses will be affected by it. So I don't think we should take it necessarily as read as that there is insufficient evidence. We don't know that on the outside just yet. We just know that particular race courses are unhappy with what's been proposed. So who specifically is going to feel the real benefits of this plan then? Um, well, I mean, obviously, the overarching argument is that net profit for the whole sport will benefit and so that in different ways, everybody will benefit. Um, I think uh, viewers will benefit um, I think that uh, people, punters will benefit. I think that uh, individual race courses that hold the best fixtures on those days will benefit from a, a greater opportunity to have their races presented as showpiece races and a greater focus. And hopefully uh, British Racing's upper tier of racing will also benefit because it will have improved prize money and therefore will incentivise the keeping in training of better horses uh, in Britain in, in the short and, and long term. So where I'm a bit torn here, Lydia, is that, yes, much has been made of decluttering Saturdays, the premierisation, the focus on the big race days, you know, burnishing the sport's best assets to make a more appealing betting product. But that betting product has to be super competitive and you want those races to be really strong. And that means that there aren't a million alternatives for, for horses, particularly at the middle to higher end. And whilst this is being talked of as a, a bit of a silver bullet, it's not actually addressing the overarching problem of what most people consider to be a bloated fixture list. It is. It's just sort of shuffling stuff around. Not in any way. And, uh, you know, because individual race courses, again, um, say that that would affect their own personal individual business models. I mean, this threat of legal action, you know, there, there will be some people, and I have some sympathy with this, who say, bring it on, because the concept that uh, race courses own fixtures uh, brought through when the Office of Fair Trading had a look at a look at the centralisation of the fixture list and decided that that wasn't uh, the best the best thing for, for competition. I would say that most of the sports ills have flowed from that decision. The centralisation of the fixture list, more centralised control, I can only see to be sensible for the benefit of British racing as a whole. Without that that centralisation, you just have individual vested interests playing off against each other. And I'm, you know, I was 
interested about the race courses talking about their the impact on their personal businesses well i'm sure that trainers would like to talk about what's happened in the past few years and the impact on their personal businesses as well and the um the mismatch in terms of the power of argument between what race courses collectively are able to must to must muster compared with what you know the individuals who train and own and breed horses can do um it, it is an utter utter mismatch uh, I, are there, there of course there is one saturday that is more congested than all the others in in the summer although it, it's not really an outlier anymore but it used to be called super saturday or still is um and sort of well, well let's make a virtue of it we know it's a bit of a cluster but we'll make a virtue of it because that's the best way we can sell it and of course it came about because the jockey club moved new markets july festival to thursday friday saturday to sit that saturday the same day as york's famous and historic john smith's cup day so they sort of parked the tanks on york's lawn really there's chester there as well and ascot got involved in it as well so lots of the big independents um, there was an interesting little bit in the in the Racing Post where ITV's Ed Chamberlain described it as bonkers. William Darby, the chief executive of York, said sometimes bonkers is good. And of course, William would be a big advocate of the premierization strategy, I, I would have thought, um, as would the Jockey Club. But it, it'll be interesting to see if the Jockey Club budges and decides to move the July Cup back off that day. I suspect they won't. Well, there's nothing super about that Saturday. Uh, I'm sorry, but it is bonkers. Ed Chamberlain is is completely correct, and none of those uh, race meetings get the the due attention that they should have. You know, jockeys are pulled all over the country so that connections can't call upon their their jockey for serious horses in serious races. Um, we know that the net effect on betting turnover is a negative. It isn't offset by the positive crowd crowd attendance turnovers. It's it's just a nonsense. There is nothing super about that Saturday. Never before, perhaps, has the uh, revelation of the annual levy yield been so significant. That, of course, is the amount of money paid to the horse race betting levy board in in a year by uh, the bookmakers, their 10% of their gross profits. It's £99 million from April the 1st, 2022 to March the 31st, 2023, which is higher than expected throws up all sorts of interesting questions surrounding affordability and turnover versus profit models and, uh, and things like that. Chief Executive of the Levy Board, Alan Del Monte, is with me now. So, Alan, first of all, why is this figure higher than anticipated, do you think? Well, the, the particular spike uh, happened in the last couple of months of the year. The levy is based on gross profit, uh, and bookmakers had a an above average profitable month in February and again in March. The year began with um, a, a very uh, a good positive result for Levy in the Grand National with Noble Yates winning at 50 to 1 in uh, the Grand National. Um, and the story of the year has really been that there was that very good start. Um, but then gradually through the year, what we've seen is a fall in turnover, as in the amount being bet as opposed to the amount being won by bookmakers. So there is an underlying issue about less money being staked, which we saw really from July onwards, continuing through the year. We were anticipating that Levy would be uh, uh, up to 95 million and a small chance that it would go above 95. It would have needed, uh, in in recent times, the the best uh, February and March that we've had to get above 95 and that's what we saw uh, so it, it's a it's a it's a mixed picture in the sense that it is it is good in cash terms uh, it's ahead of where we 
thought it would be, but there is this issue around falling turnover that mm. is uh, easy to overlook, but it's something that the board and everyone else involved will need to think about in the in the period ahead. All right, a couple of really interesting points coming out of that. One pertaining to turnover, come to that in a minute. The other to how affordability checks might be affecting turnover. To what extent do you believe that is the primary reason why bookmakers' turnover on horse racing is declining? That's a difficult question for us to answer. Um, in fact, almost an impossible question for us to answer because what we see is 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 the headline numbers we obviously have have the visibility into individual firms numbers which are not not put in the public domain but even they won't tell you the story of what's behind the numbers so um our, our view um through the year has been that there are a combination of factors around falling turnover there there were some well publicized issues around um, uncompetitive field sizes, particularly last summer. There is obviously the wider economic pressures that we're seeing. There's the question of, of, of affordability checks. And all these things are are influencing the, the picture to some extent. But it, I'm not sure that we would be in a position to give any any definitive guidance to the impact of one of those versus another. Talk about turnover versus profit then as a as a model for for collecting money from the bookmakers. Um, everybody who 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 runs the sport seems to suggest that a turnover model is the is the ideal model. Do these figures not not run entirely counter to that narrative? Well, the the position there is that government has just started its review of the levy uh, rate and the scope and with a view to looking to have changes in place well before April 24. Uh, The question of what the government will take into account is really in the hands of racing and betting as they do their lobbying. What conclusions government might come to, the levy board won't be directly involved in making those decisions. Probably the best that we can do is to provide as much information as we can about what's happening. No doubt that uh, a picture of falling turnover but static profit for, for bookmakers will be something that people will look at with interest in coming to their uh, decision. Uh, obviously, there's a lot to take uh, to, to weigh up in coming to a view about what the right structure is. It's not just about um, the, the amount of money that you're looking to raise, but about what structure provides the healthiest position for racing's future financing. And there are different views about that. There are different views about whether turn uh, moving everything to turnover. Uh, the media rights uh, and the levy creates a certain dynamic in the in the betting market that is different if you have a mixed picture. Uh, but racing has has been fairly well publicised in in saying that it it prefers the certainty of a of a turnover uh, of a turnover arrangement for the levy. But no doubt they will look at what we're seeing at the moment and and try to take this into account in the months ahead. And of course, the the question that. Um, owners and, and trainers will want answered is how does a figure of 99 million pounds parlay into prize money uh, and whether it, it increases or decreases in terms of the HBLB's contribution to it uh, for the year moving forward? 
Well, the first big decision for, for the board will be next month uh, around what we are putting into prize money for September to December this year. We've only at the moment made a commitment to the end of August. Without preempting that discussion, um, the, the position that we're in financially is certainly healthier than we m might have anticipated. Not that much healthier, but the fact that it's no worse than uh, than we were than we were predicting certainly would give a good backdrop for uh, continuing what we're doing, rather than making any reductions. There was a concern that we might be facing a, a more difficult period for the rest of this year, so it, it would. I would think be more likely than not that things would stay as they were for 2023. For 2024, there's a lot going on there because uh, racing strategy review is continuing. It's it's getting towards the closing stages of proposals around the fixture programme for 2024. So we would anticipate that we would get some guidance at the June at our June board meeting as to the direction of travel there and then probably our board coming to a, a decision on funding from September onwards I'm not sure at the moment we can give any certainty about um, exactly how much cash we're talking about but in the sense in the sense that nothing has nothing major has changed we need to find three million pounds a year to repay the loan from government and that that that's going to be with us for for eight years but certainly stability in what we're funding has been what we've tried to do in in recent years and we will try to make sure that continues for next year all right that was alan del monte the chief executive of the levy board so some some cautiously good news in terms of the actual number lydia the the turnover is trending downwards however and this of course will precipitate a, a debate you think you think this debate about premierization is going to be going to be livid and angry wait, wait wait till you get the the what form should the levy take whether should it be a turnover or profit-based model and i'm sure it will be done <laughs> quite <laughs> without any sense of irony on the basis of a lack of data and information you know, <laughs> bearing in mind that that is the argument that's being put forward about premierization. So, you know, Alan's made the point that you can't really tell what the impact on turnover has been caused by. It might be affordability checks. It might be economic pressures. It might be horse racing's own uncompetitive field sizes, which directly links to its bloated fixture list, which is as already in, uh, pointed out that the RCA has mentioned a couple of times. It, it, they are not intending to to change in in any kind of way. So, you know, what impact has actually been made by SP changes? You know, margins. How many flows? are changing what's the impact of higher media rights charges on turnover you know what how about customer retention at the moment people are just quite happy to guess and say oh you know, turnover that's the model we should we should be moving to and away from 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 profits it shouldn't be just these numbers that cause people to pause and ask for more information it's just basic common sense all right, well, here in Baltimore, the sun's coming up. It's an absolutely glorious morning now over the harbour. And just a, a few miles away at the racetrack, at Pimlico Racetrack, final touches being applied to the horses that are going to be taking on Mage in the middle leg of the Triple Crown. We heard from Mage's connections earlier in the week. The key danger might be first mission drawn down to the inside, running for Godolphin for Brad Cox, who had four horses run behind Mage in the Kentucky Derby and First Mission's latest success came in the Lexington Stakes at Keeneland 
since when he's been impressing just about everyone. Trainer joins me on the line now. There's been some pretty bullish talk about this horse, Brad, during the course of the week. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, listen, he's training well. He's settled in here. Uh, he arrived Monday evening uh, to Baltimore, and we love what we've seen from him so far. And, uh, you know, what he's shown us since the Lexington is a horse that's continuing to, you know, improve physically and then obviously his works as well. So, uh, you know, look, he, he's a good colt. We've thought that for a while. And uh, hopefully uh, he can, uh, you know, uh, make a good account of himself on Saturday and uh, hopefully a great one winner after Saturday. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a horse who, as you say, won, won the Lexington Stakes well. That tends to be a bit of a last-chance saloon for the Kentucky Derby. Were you at all tempted at any stage to go, oh, go on then? Not really. It would have been back in three weeks, and we, you know, after he ran first time and was second, he came back in four weeks, and then he came back again in four weeks to the Lexington. So I felt like we were throwing a lot at him in a short period of time. He accepted it all. He accepted it all very well. Um, I think that's obviously the sign of a good horse when, you know, they obviously have that heavy workload and they're able to take it, continue to physically develop. And, uh, you know, that's what he's done. And, uh, you know, now he has five weeks between the Lexington and the Preakness, you know, three solid moves there at Churchill prepared, preparing for this, uh, Preakness and, um, you know, we'll see, but no, really to answer your question, I never really thought the Derby made sense. Uh, it's a it's a short field. He's got he's got the inside gate with eight. Does it really matter? No, nah, listen. They got a really long, they they got a long run to the first turn here at Pimlico. Um, I don't think you know Post is going to play a, a huge. I hope it doesn't. Uh, you know, I'm just you know I think first and foremost you just hope they break straight and the horses around you break and don't get in your way. And you know it's a you know good clean run race and hopefully you know start goes well. See how works how it goes final question you, you had the third and the fifth in the kentucky derby they were only beaten a length and a half and six and a quarter lengths and angel event by the third might have been a little bit unlucky uh, people will be saying hang on brad must know where he is with mage yeah look i mean both horses ran, you know ran very well uh angel vampire you know I, th- I thought he ran a great race you know just you know come up a little short and uh you know he came out of in good order he's got his first work back this weekend and he's a belmont possible uh, so he might go to the belmont what about his show Hitcho, yeah, definitely uh, going to you know entertain the idea. Um, he's had some luck up there at the Naira tracks with having won the Withers. I know it's obviously Aqueduct, but uh, you know he, he's able to he's been able to ship up to New York and run well so twice this year between the win in the Withers and the uh, second in the the Woods. So we're going to look at it and uh, see how it comes up. In your heart of hearts, do you think you're about to throw your most talented one in Major's way? Yeah, I, I, th- I think I think he's you know th- this horse he he seems to be like you know could be could be the real real deal. I mean you know he has, obviously has to prove it, but very intelligent horse. I think that uh, you know he he's got the mind to be anything. So you know we'll see how see see what happens on Saturday. Well, Brad, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. I know you're busy. Thanks, Nick. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Okay, so it's day two of York's Dante meeting. We were talking a little bit earlier in the program about the the scale of hospitality at venues like this during big weeks. Kevin Pennington is the general catering manager uh, from York. How did yesterday go, Kevin? Extremely well, yes. We're delighted with everything. The weather's held up and it was um, glorious weather, so that always helps. And uh, helps with the crowds and numbers on the lot. Champagnes on were, were great. We first tested our QR code on ordering on the champagne terraces. It went really well, really well received. So uh, that's a new sort of offer for us this, this year, which is good. 
Did that boost sales? Did the ease with which you could get a bottle of fizz swung to your table? Did did that did that mean you were? Yeah, you, it's interesting. The, the first the first order is a, a obviously day one of the rollout. First order was uh, four bottles of champagne, which is <laughs> nice, isn't it? So nice nice start to the day. Yeah. yeah. Did, did did you tell him or her they couldn't they couldn't drink all four at once? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you, tr- you try telling someone they can't drink them all at once, but yeah, they definitely. Um, yeah, they did had a good drink of them. So yeah, hopefully they didn't last all day. They only lasted the morning. So uh, you opened your Flying Frankie pub yesterday. Uh, James Brennan was talking to us about that on on the podcast. Uh, how did it all go? Was a good demand for that? Yeah, really well. In fact, uh, we had um, Simon Thigson came down to do the opening, uh, um, and it actually helped serve a couple of pints. So some of the some of the uh, Race goes were delighted that they had the, the top man from Thigston's uh, Brewers um, serving them the pint of Thigston's in, in glass, and they thoroughly enjoyed it. It was made, sort of made their day, really. And um, yeah, so we had the sort of Thigston's um, Ebor IPA, which is a, a brand, a, a brew that's just brewed, brewed for us at the race course. Can't get it anywhere else. That's with Yorkshire, but maybe Yorkshire barley, English hops, a really zesty beer, refreshing. So yeah, I think it's going to be a real success down there, and it looks looks stunning. What we've done in, in that area with with our partners, Thigstons. All right. Well, I'm going to get Lydia Hislop to go down and uh, sample a pint of it today. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, the the York Philly sandwich. That's a that's a new catering offering. Yeah, we've updated our um, uh, John John Car Griddle offer down there. Quite a new different things on there. So the Philly steak sandwich, obviously steaks, mushrooms, onions, cheese sauce. For ten, it's a, a real sort of filler. It'd definitely fill you up for the day. It's uh, another great offer. Then we've got the uh, your chicken uh, wrap with um, chili jam man, which chili jam man is based in Malton, just down the road. So that's that's great. Um, so yeah, he's just um, down there. Um, it's a great offer for us there. Good stuff. And just uh, just in terms of the scale of the operation, obviously it's not not the Ebor Festival, but still this week it's a it's a big effort in terms of manpower and, and logistics. Just give us a, a flavour, if you'll pardon the pun, of of, uh, <laughs> of what of what it's like for you this week. I thought you were going to ask for a flavour of the Philly steak sandwich and oh. the Fixins uh, IPA, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, the flavour of the numbers we've got. It's um, a huge logistic operation. It's many months in the planning for the, just for the Dante meeting, but for the full season ahead. So we we'll do over five thousand covers this week, and then uh, just to facilitate that, we've got over seven hundred staff here on just on one day. So the Friday we'll have seven hundred staff. That includes 50 managers, 60-odd chefs. All our food is produced in-house on site. So the, the, the craft chefs that we have, you know, that takes it to a different level. So the, all the production levels that we have on the ground floor to, to manage all that is, is, is huge. The porterage. So it's, it's massive for the economy, really, um, um, the, all our logistics on site. So it is huge. Kevin, thanks for talking to me. Best of luck for the rest of the week. Yeah, that's great. We've had a great day yesterday. So the weather holds up. Hopefully we'll have a... Great couple of days. Hopefully, see you on site. Uh, not well. I'm afraid I'm 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 in Baltimore, so it's uh, it's crab cakes for me all week. But enjoy the Philly steak sandwiches. Well, you should have bought, did you put a bet on Frankie yesterday? We won eighteen to one, I believe. Well oh. done, well done. Yeah. Did you, were you on? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I should have done. Yeah, someone yeah. said to me, "Come here for a reason." So, it was a, it, it was a tough gig finding winners yesterday. Kevin, thanks for your time. All right, check out. Bye bye. All right, thanks to Kevin, uh, Lydia. I'm I'm charging you with tasting this IPA today because you're more of a, um, a ale drinker than I am. 
and I can't drink it from this many thousand miles away anyway. So. No, 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 indeed. But that is that that is an understatement, I think, about you and me versus uh, ale drinking. But yeah, okay. How are you going to make this happen from that far away? I'm going to I'm going to have a, a liveried flunky serve it to you on a silver tray at some point during the <laughs> at York, and uh, then I'm going to ask you to report back for tomorrow's podcast, please. Okay. Okay. If um, you fulfil your side of the bargain, I'll fulfil mine. But I mean, genuinely, you do like real ale. It's not. I genuinely do like real ale. You're, you're a genuine. You, you're actually you're a connoisseur who can distinguish between the flavours. I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur, but I do like it. Fine, good stuff. Um, there's plenty to enthuse about on the race course today. Much of this will have happened by the time you listen to this, I would think. But at this stage, just so you can look clever like Cornelius did with Chiava yesterday, uh, <laughs> what's going to win the Dante? Uh, Canberra legend. Mm. It'd be a nice story, wouldn't it? And I, think, I think he's very talented, uh, and I think he'll improve for a, a step up in trip as well. I was very taken with his win at Newmarket in the field, and um, I think he did a lot of things wrong, and he still managed to be impressive. It looks like he wants it. I've just been taking a quick look at the decks for tomorrow's uh, Yorkshire Cup. That looks a nice race as well. Never mind, we've got no Stradivarius. What about Quickthorn versus Broom versus the Ledger winner, Elder Elderov? This is going to be the race that sets the tone for cup races for the rest of the year, isn't it? I do hope so. I mean, it's great to have Elder uh, Elderov still in training as well. And, you know, Quickthorn was brilliant at his best last season and of course Broom has, has has was was really really good last time as well yeah it's going to be it's going to be a good race that and I do hope it does uh, set the pattern for the rest of the season mm. and Broom broke subjectivist track record in Dubai as well not mm. to be forgotten in a, a well-run race and loves loves a bit of fast ground too um what about uh, a tip for today uh, I've already given it you actually uh Canberra legend oh. in the ah. ah so he gets the he gets the the, the full nap very much so. Very much so. I think he's a he was a bigger price than I'm ex- I was expecting. The time of speaking, he is nine to two. Um, I think that's a, that's a good price. Lydia, thank you so much. Thank you very much for for listening. Um, if you have enjoyed this podcast or you do enjoy this podcast, please do leave us a a, a rating and or a review on any of your podcast providers. Uh, we'd be we'd be really grateful, and we will see you again tomorrow. It's absolutely beautiful morning here. Uh, I had to say it, didn't I? Good morning, Baltimore. Goodbye. (laughs) You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.